Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now, or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again, wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Sarah Avon Stover podcast, a space to come home to your inner wisdom. I'm Sarah, best-selling author and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality. And this podcast was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations about all different facets of the feminine spiritual journey. But above all, I created this because I believe that when a woman gets still and quiet enough to hear her inner wisdom, she's able to live her true path in the world. I hope this podcast helps you do just this. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello all, welcome to May, and spring is definitely arriving late here in Boulder, which is good in the sense that we're getting a lot of precipitation, and things will be hopefully quite green soon, but the leaves are finally starting to fill out on the trees, and the lilac bushes in my backyard are blooming. 
I'm also fully vaccinated now, as I know many of us are, and I'm just elated to start doing things that I haven't done in a long time, like meeting friends inside a coffee shop, going out to eat inside a restaurant, and going to a yoga class inside a yoga studio. I never thought that doing such previously mundane things would now feel like such a luxury. And I know that I'm in a privileged place and that much of the world is still suffering greatly from COVID. So I hope that wherever you are, you are staying well. And if you haven't seen it yet on my social media and soon here on the podcast, I'm celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the publication of my first book, The Way of the Happy Woman, which I know is how many of you have found me. So I invite you to join me on Facebook and Instagram and here on the podcast, do a couple of episodes for the anniversary. And the the links to my social media are in the show notes. And today I have a very rich and thought and feeling provoking conversation to share with you. It's a pretty deep topic and a, a very important one. So today I'm inviting on the podcast a woman named Daniela Seif. And I first learned of Daniela this past winter while listening to Tokopa Turner's version of her book, Belonging. In it, she speaks about the archetype of the death mother, which the late Jungian analyst Marion Woodman gave voice and more name to in the later stages of her life. And as many of you know, Marion has been a huge influence in my own healing journey, in my work, and learning about her interpretations of the death mother have added a whole new dimension to my studies, which I think I'll be still unpacking for some time now. And I found through Tokopa Turner's book that Daniela met with Marion and interviewed her about this archetype, again, in the later stages of Marion's life. And then Daniela has gone on to develop her own exploration and interpretation of the death mother, which we will explore today in depth. Daniela Seif, PhD, is an author, scholar, and speaker. For as long as Daniela can remember, she has been deeply curious about what shapes us as human beings. In her 20s, that curiosity led her to study for a doctorate in biological anthropology at the University of Oxford. Her research took her to a wilderness region of Tanzania to work with a traditional cattle herding people. In her 30s, the focus of Daniela's curiosity shifted And for the last 20 years, she has been exploring how emotional trauma shapes us and how we can reshape ourselves through a process of healing. Daniela's research into trauma brings together her own personal experience with knowledge that comes from depth psychology, anthropology, and evolution. She is the author of Understanding and Healing Emotional Trauma, Conversations with Pioneering Clinicians and Researchers, which came out in 2015. And she's currently working on new books. You can find her online at daniellaseif.com. That's Daniela with one L, and Seif is spelled S-I-E-F-F. And the link to her website is in the show notes. 
What Daniela and I speak about today will particularly interest you if you were adopted, if you felt unwanted, neglected, or unloved by your mother or caregiver, if you grew up with a mother or caregiver who was physically or emotionally absent due to various reasons, work, addiction, illness. And it's also of interest if you're struggling with cancer and addiction and eating disorder or an autoimmune disease, or if you have had an abortion, given a child up for adoption, or have felt ambivalent or even resentful about being a mother. It's time to dispel the myth of the all-loving mother, which has really cast a spell over us culturally during this patriarchal reign on the planet, and to bring more balance by acknowledging the shadow side of motherhood and our femininity in that not everyone wants to be a mother and that not everyone who's a mother always feels uh, loving and nurturing towards her children and that we can also turn this on ourselves and not always care for ourselves or bring nurturing to ourselves or want for ourselves to be alive. So listen in, there's lots of rich material in here. And now for my conversation with Daniela. Welcome, Daniela. It's really great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. And we always start our conversations here with a bit of a personal check-in. So I'd love for you to share with us where you're joining us from today, as well as how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind. I'm joining you from the English countryside, about an hour and a half outside London. So I am surrounded by fields and uh, more rain and grey clouds, which we've had a lot of recently, but it's very beautiful. And um, there may be some deer coming through the garden in a minute. So. Um, it's a very lovely place to be. I am, well, I'm tired. I'm reworking some of this death mother material for a chapter that I'm writing, which is quite academic, but for um, the Royal College of Psychiatry. So I've been with death mother for most of today, and it's a very draining energy to be with and quite a, a you know, um, a difficult energy to, and I mean, I've been with it for, for several days now. So I'm, um, you know, connected and feeling that I'm doing something fulfilling and there's meaning, but there's also a, a, there's a, there's a kind of slight tiredness that goes, goes with that just for, for being with this material. I can imagine it is a, it is a heavy topic, which we'll get into more today and I can see how being immersed in it for several days would take a toll on your system. And, and it seems like you've also been involved with this archetype for, for a much longer period of time. Like how, how many years would you say you've been engaging with the death mother? Well, it, it depends on whether you mean consciously or in terms of, right? Maybe both, maybe both. I mean, if we're talking in terms of, you know, when did I first meet the deaf mother? Probably when I was born. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I was born to a mother who who actually loved me deeply and wanted me, and I was very cherished, but she carried trauma, a lot of trauma. She was a Holocaust refugee. She lost grandparents in the Holocaust and um, cousins, and because of that, she carried aspects of the death mother, not the, the, the most kind of extreme form of not wanting the child, but of having very definite ideas of what this child should be in order to be able to survive. And I wasn't that. I wasn't willing to fit into that mould. So I think I met it very early um, in terms of, you know, which, which is obviously why the work has, has drawn me because it, it speaks to something I, I know from my own experience. And then more consciously, I met it first through the evolutionary frame as a, an undergraduate and graduate. I was doing work um, in evolution and looking at diff- when parents might favour sons or daughters, when they might favour daughters, when they might favour sons. There's a whole load of evolutionary theory around it. And part of where that gets played out is sometimes in abandoning children of one sex or another. So we'll get on to that, I think, when we'll get on to my work, not necessarily on, on the, on the um, abandoning kids, depending on their sex. So I came across the kind of evolutionary side of it at that point. So that was in my early 20s. But of course, it wasn't deaf mother then. And then um, I came across it in, in the form of deaf mother. I Starting in 2000, I did ba- yearly workshops with Marion Woodman. She used to, along with Mary Hamilton and Anne Skinner, um, and Judith Harris, in, they'd come to the UK and they'd run week-long workshops in an amazing place in Devon. And I started doing those workshops in 2000, I think. And I did them every year. Sometimes I then ended up going to the States or to Canada to do, to do them, or to do a second one. And in one of, throughout those workshops, there'd be a myth that would kind of um, carry the week, carry the thread and the kind of structure of the week. And one of those, Marion, we used the myth of Medusa and it was built around the death mother. So that was when I first kind of explicitly heard about it, uh, you know, heard that phrase and um, started really thinking about it, having words and images and myths and stories to be able to shape some of what i experienced and knew from other realms Mm. yeah it's a significant relationship with this archetype both just in your own felt personal journey and then professionally and our conversation today is going to be all about that I'm sure listeners are already very curious and before we we head into the death mother more fully I also want to hover a little bit in this this place of a personal check-in And to acknowledge that we are, at the time of this recording, we're still in the pandemic. Uh, The landscape is shifting, certainly, with vaccines coming out in certain parts of the world. And I'm curious how, I know this is a big question, but you could also chunk it down just to the phase that you're in right now. But how has this time been for you? And what are you finding helps you just to, to weather to be with this time the most? I, you know, how I am with it is, is I'm very split. I've had my first vaccine and I'm deeply grateful for that. I have my second vaccine quite soon. Um, 
I am naturally an introvert. So the yes, it's been more aloneness than I I live alone. So it'd be it's been more aloneness than I would normally have. But I'm not. I don't struggle with a lack of you know with being alone I saw my sister and her husband and their kids and their partners for the first time in a year and a half on Saturday I'd seen my sister um and that was just heavenly it was just gorgeous but um it's been in terms for me an incredibly creative time work-wise I've done a lot of work and I've appreciated having the space and not having to say no I've been with a lot of fear as we all have I think um and so so there's been that side and in many ways I've been lucky um and I've got work I'm passionate about and that I you know can do from home I also managed to get high speed internet about three months before lockdown because I live in the countryside I had very low speed internet I couldn't do a, a video call so you know I've been every day grateful for being able to connect to people a video call and then at the other side I look at places like India and I can bear I got to the point last week where I could barely watch the news you know the suffering in places where there is no vaccine and where people are not able to self-isolate or where when they do it's it's you know so economically disastrous that it's completely life-threatening in a different way and and just the horror and of the suffering of what some people are going through. And I find that very hard. And I think the way I've, I've listened to the news and then I've gone, no, I can't listen to this for a couple of days. I can't, I just, it's too much to take in kind of, you know, especially feeling here very privileged of here I am vaccinated and about to get the second one. Yeah, I relate, I relate to a lot of that. It's, um, I'm also vaccinated now and just feel really relieved and really grateful. And now like you just turning our eyes more to the rest of the world and um, just the, the growing disparities. So thanks. Thank you for sharing that. And I first learned about you not too long ago is this past winter, I was listening to the audio version of Hokopa Turner's beautiful book, called Belonging. And in it, she discusses the archetype of the death mother, uh, which is a term that the union analyst that you mentioned, Marion Woodman, uh, developed. And it said that, um, that she was developing this work on the death mother and, and that you, I've learned that you also spent time with her in the later stages of her life and interviewed her about this archetype. And I know that you and Marion approach this archetype from different angles, which we'll get into. Uh, but first, can you take us back to, you mentioned that you first came across this archetype at a workshop with Marion and particularly um, the, the myth of Medusa. Can, can you flesh that out a little bit more for us? Like what, what you learned about the death archetype from her initially? Of course. Well, what Marion, you know, Jungian archetypes are symbols, so they're not a real concrete person. They symbolize an energy. So the way that Marion defined death mother was as an, as an energy that can sometimes come through people that um, has the kind of, I wish you'd never been born. I wish either you didn't exist or some aspect of you didn't exist. 
And she talked about how that is most damaging when it comes from our mothers, because this is the person who, you know, we're looking to for protection. Um, and that when that, that archetypal energy comes through, it's obviously incredibly damaging. And she's, she, the myth that she used to help under, people understand, it was the myth of Medusa and of the, when Medusa looks at you, you're being turned to stone. So that idea that when the death mother looks at you, you're absolutely frozen, all life drains from you and you are petrified. So petrified in terms of terror and, and turned into you know, st stone. Um, and so she, for her, it was this kind of archetypal energy that comes as all archetypes, Jungian archetypes do, come through real, you know, get filtered through human beings that we express. We're not the archetype, but those energies come through us and we can live parts of them. And so what for me was this kind of recognition, it was naming of a force that I had, you know, met in childhood. I'd met through other people as well. There had been, you know, teachers and supervisors and people who who have anyone who has a certain responsibility for your well-being and for whom you depend on, particularly um, when that kind of absolute kind of disdain and criticism comes through. So. You know, Marion drew it out a lot of, you know, it's the other side of wanting to live. I mean, Medusa was one of the beautiful Gorgon sisters and she made love um, to, I think it was Poseidon, I can't, I'm very bad on this, but, you know, in the, in Athena's temple and she was turned into, a, into the Gorgon out of jealousy because she could live in her body. So for Marion as well, it was very tied up with the body. It was tied up with not being able to live and being in your body. And for her, it she way she understood it was that you take in, if you grow up in that energy, you take it in to your cells in a way that your cells can then turn against you. So it can inform and um, shape cancer, which was her story of, of having had cancer. You know, she saw that that was her body turning against her in the light of, of what she'd sort of this energy that she'd faced coming at her. And of course, we know biologically that's true. You know, if you have enough stress, it changes your immune system and you end up with autoimmune diseases. So it's a kind of very symbolic and um, visceral way for us to understand and picture and story and, and texture some of those but I think for her, it came really out of an understanding and working with her with her cancer at, at some level. Right. And from what I what I understood as well, just through reading um, your materials about Marion's perspective on this, is also eating disorders, just way, ways that we turn on ourselves. Yes, and and there are both. You know, we look for mother in the sugar and in the. Yeah. Milk and in the carbohydrates and at the same time we turn on ourselves you know in that and then we reject it or we can't take it in we can't take it in we can't take in what's healthy what's nourishing because we don't trust that because that always came with such a double-edged edged sword yeah 
but it all goes back to that initial uh, relationship with mother or mother figure and feeling that we weren't fully wanted or fully accepted. Uh, I know I, I grew up in a household where there was alcoholism and I always felt, and I still have aspects of myself that just need to watch this that feel, feel like a burden or don't want to take up a lot of space or, you know, feel like I need to make myself as small as possible. And, um, and eating disorders for me was also one of the ways that that expressed itself yeah, as I got older. Yes, I, I mean, I can, uh, yes, but all of that is, is true. You know, it can take many forms, but of course, all of that is, is true. Um, and so, so when we bring in this archetype of the death mother, it just adds a whole new dimension, like a cultural dimension even, which I know we'll get into. So it's, and it helps to depersonalize it, I think, as well. I think it helps to depersonalize. And I think, you know, so many times it, to be able to name something, I mean, there's lots of names, you know, there's, there's different names we can give to aspects of our trauma and of what we've experienced. And for me, there's a sense of actually, you know, the le- not the more the better, but different layers give us different perspectives. And certainly it gives us and it give, gave me a container to be able to hold it and to look at it and to be able to then approach it and understand it. I think, you know, if we can't, if we don't have those images, especially with things that are as as difficult as eating disorders, as not, you know, needing to keep out of the way in some way or another, you know, being a burden in some way or another, because of whatever reason was going on, um, it's incredibly hard to approach that and having kind of these, these contain, having it named and having an image we can then work with is incredibly helpful for, for moving and shifting some of that energy and understanding what we carry and then, and then, you know, learning how to hold it, how to move beyond it where we can, often we can't move beyond it, but we can hold it and relate to it in a different way so that, we hold it rather than it holding us. We can change that. Yes, that's really, that's well said. And something else I wanted to name about archetypes is how how they are universal throughout culture and time. So this, this archetype of the death mother is, is ever present, not just in certain parts of the world. It's, it's, it's within all, all of our, psyches or collective consciousness yes I think that is probably true of the death mother I'm not sure that's true of all the archetypes I think we're understanding that you know cultural learning and there is considerable cultural variation I think there's been a lot of work in psychology about how much of psychology is about kind of western educated white college students really and how that some of that doesn't generalize and I think some of the archetypes don't gen, won't generalize we'll find they won't generalize um, but I think death mother is one that that will be in will will be pretty universal right so let's get into that more now because I know that you and Marion have different kind of takes of the archetype in different directions and or Initially, and I know that there's ways that that you're finding places where they meet now, but 
Can and you take more of an evolutionary anthropolo- anthropological approach to the death mother? Can you help walk us through your perspective on this? Yeah, well, so let me try and put those two next to each other. For Marion was concerned with, you know, that energy coming at us from our mothers and, and what it does to us. And so the evolution and the anthropological approach looks at why might women be carrying that energy? Why might that energy, it sort of takes one step back to say, look, if this is a universal archetype, what might underlie it? Does it, you know, just exist because it exists? So are there some reasons about being a human being that this is, is part of our psyche and part of the human experience? And um, what, it's, it's, it's quite a long story, but the story is, is that we, um, we have this image that kind of we've evolved instinctually to love every single child that we've given, we give birth to. That's kind of the Western myth. And that, you know, the good mother automatically feels love and will nurture and give up her life ultimately for every child that she gives birth to. The reality is that being a mother for most of human history has been very different to how it is for us in the West. So for most of human history, and indeed in many parts of the world still today, child mortality rates are between 30 to 60%. So that's between three and six of every 10 children born die, right? And being a mother has been a much more complex and led and challenging um, proposition in terms of trying to keep your children alive. If you think your average child mortality rates between 30 and 60%, it's not easy to keep human children alive. And women have been put in the position often of needing to be discriminating in terms of which kids they care for and which kids they don't, particularly when times are difficult. So throughout human existence, there have been times of plenty and times of scarcity. That's, you know, we have plenty, we have, you know, far too, most of us have access to far too many calories in the West, but there's a sizable number of people who are still going hungry in in kind of high and middle income countries, let alone in, in low income countries. But throughout human evolutionary history, there have been periods of famines, there have been seasons of famines, there have been, you know, years of famines. Um, the resources that you've needed to keep human children alive have been hard to come by. And one of the big challenges of human children compared to other primates and other species is that with most um other mammals, indeed, I think once an infant is weaned, it finds most of its own food. With human children, once they're weaned, they still don't produce, even in hunter-gatherers. It varies depending on place to place, but they're not produce on average, mid to late teens before they're self-sufficient in food. So what it means is that mothers are responsible for provisioning several children at the same time. You know, a mother might have a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 6-year-old, 
a four-year-old and a nursing kid. I mean, unlikely that she'd have that many that were alive, but if they were all alive, she might have, you know, five or six children. And that would be fine in times of plenty, and there undoubtedly have been times of plenty. But in times of shortages, that you would not have been, a mother would not have been able to get enough food to feed all her children. Um, it's probably clearest, or certainly the original work came out of really early work with breastfeeding. So what you found is that in, in non-Western populations, populations without contraception, if you are frequently breastfeeding, um, and all the way through the night and, and whenever, you know, the infant wants to feed, it has a significant contraceptive effect. So most women are not getting pregnant until their current nursing infant is ready to be weaned. But every so often that doesn't work and a woman gets pregnant. And, you know, in hunter-gatherers, women are walking six, ten kilometres a day to gather food to feed the nine-year-old, the 12-year-old, the 15-year-old as well. So you can't carry two kids. You can't carry two nursing kids on 10-kilometre treks and then carry back all the tumours. You can't produce enough breast milk for them both. If you try to nurse both kids, the chances are you'll get so malnourished you die. And if you die, any nursing kids die too. I mean, I do, you know, being a self-sacrificing mum before bottled milk when you had an infant meant the death of your children. Before we had bottled infant formula, if mum died, any nursing children would die. So, and um, if you try to breastfeed them both, you're not going to have enough, you know, the chances are they'll both die. So what you find in practically every hunter-gatherer society, not quite every, but nearly every hunter-gatherer society that we know of, is that if mum gives birth, to a newborn and she still has a child that is nursing and requires continued to be nursing, the newborn is often left in the, uh, just not picked up or left to die at that point. And so, you know, it's, it's death mother for the newborn done as the best of a bad job because that is the only way to keep the older child and herself alive. And these are choices that have been intrinsic to mothering throughout all of human evolution, you know. And I think if you look at Victorian England, it wasn't so much about um, nursing kids, but it was about, have, you know, if you had another kid and you were poor, you wouldn't be able to get enough feed, food to feed them all. In Japan, there was considerable infanticide in um, the 18th, 19th centuries, and it was called... The word used to describe it was mabiki, which meant the thinning out. It was a, a word from agriculture that meant you thin out the seedlings so that each had enough life, and light and space to be able to grow. And, you know, I, I think it's always been that at some level has always been in the background of human mothering. There have always had to be um, mothers when resources are low and when they don't have support because how much support you have makes an enormous difference. But when they don't have support, have been had to make very difficult choices about how to keep, between keeping certain children alive in order to keep some children alive. 
I want to take a short break from today's conversation to tell you about a six-week series I'm teaching online this summer called Changing with Grace, A Woman's Path Through Life's Transitions. We've all heard it, that change is the only constant in life. And while change is inevitable, growth is most certainly a choice. And just because this is true doesn't mean it's easy. Change, I know, you know, is hard. Globally, we are all undergoing a great change. What was no longer is here, and what's to be is not yet here. And given this level of uncertainty, which will likely be present in different ways, larger degrees for the rest of our lives, how do we navigate the unknown while staying deeply anchored in ourselves? Plus, as women, we're intimately linked with change from our flexing hormones and ever-changing bodies to aging, relationships, our work, family, identities, All of this change can bring up fear, doubt, nostalgia, anger, anxiety, confusion, depression, disorientation, as well as excitement, because even positive change can be challenging at times. And since this change isn't going anywhere, how can we learn to be with it more gracefully? How can we accept it, move with it, partner with it? even when it's unwelcome, to still create a life that feels true and fulfilling. Over these six weeks, we'll come together as a community to support, challenge, and witness one another in the exploration of change. Doing this within a conscious community is far easier than doing it on our own. By applying ancient wisdom teachings and practical embodied psychological tools to our modern day changing inner and outer landscapes will fill ourselves with more reserves and strength to weather life's changes with grace. We start on June 23rd and to learn more, head to sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag change. That's sarahavonstover.com forward slash hashtag change. SarahAvonStover.com forward slash hashtag change. I look forward to sharing space with you then and there. And now back to today's conversation. Right. And as you and I were speaking about before we started recording, that the infanticide from the past, now that's mostly replaced by abortion and adoption. Well, abortion yeah. wasn't, I don't, maybe it was an option in some cases with different types of herbal remedies. I don't know exactly, but it seems like is it, th- those are the same reasons why women today would get an abortion. They don't have enough support or resources to have a child. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's very true. I think, um, you know, one of the big, if you look at it evolutionarily, I think, and they both boil down to the same thing, you know, the resources were crucial and support. I mean, there's nothing you can do about breastfeeding. If you've got, if you're already breastfeeding, you know, however much support you've got isn't going to help. But for older children, certainly we know that in traditional societies, you know, having granny around 
can reduce child mortality by 50%. So instead of like, you know, four out of 10 children dying, if a woman's own, own mother is there and helping, you reduce that child mortality by 50%, right? That's you can, significant. And that's really significant. So the amount of support women have had made a huge difference um, to their ability to, to keep their kids alive and to invest in kids, you know, and to get more food. And yes, I think you find in a lot of cases with, with abortion today is, you know, it's, it's people who are at a time of life where they don't have that support, where, um, you know, it'd be incredibly difficult if they were to have a kid at that point. And in a way it, you know, it, it's part of the freedom for women to have abortion is I think part of the reason why rates of infanticide are negligible in our society. Yeah. I think, you know, without, there was, um, what part of the reason why babies were stopped being allowed, to, why, you know, to sleep in the beds of their parents were because mums were just like accident accidentally supposedly rolling over on suffocating their babies but you know there's arguments that a good proportion of that was or some proportion of that was was infanticide of women who were unable didn't have the resources to care for that child and I think that you know uh, abortion has uh, certainly freed up a, meant a, a, a large percentage of those are no longer, you know, taking place. No, is, is there is no need for that? I'm not sure that's quite the right word, but but yeah, yeah. And the the death mother archetype, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning of this interview, it's it's heavy. And I and I want to name that there's part of there's probably a part of all of us as we're hearing this and talking about this that that cringes at it and just doesn't want to doesn't want to look at it, doesn't want to acknowledge it, doesn't want to say that this is here. And that's one of the problems that that we're facing in our culture is just that this archetype has gone so much into shadow, as you mentioned, because we're, we're in such a Western civilization is so um, pro-natal, just so, so pro-motherhood and I, I don't know the full roots of that, but I would say a lot of that is is as a result of the patriarchy, just really uh, just highlighting and uplifting the role of mother and not not seeing this darker side of it. And you name a spectrum of this archetype that can go from infanticide to neglect to adoption to um, you know, I named addiction to a mother being absent because of illness. And at the root of all of this is the belief that the death mother is unnatural. And what, what we're discovering here is that it, it is a natural aspect of, of ourselves, of culture. And one of the reasons why, why we don't want to look at it is because there, there can be a feeling of shame and inadequacy for women to acknowledge that, that this is present in them. So how can women who are living with this archetype um, either hurting themselves uh, through addiction or eating disorders or 
of auto, autoimmune disease or cancer and feel that there is a part of themselves that is uh, kind of turning against them, or this is acting out in their own relationship with their children or their own mothers, how can they start to accept this aspect of themselves? I think that's part of what I, you know, part of what Marion tried, Woodman tried to do with her work is to name it and to bring it into the open. And I think that's part of what I've tried to do with the kind of evolution in the anthropology work to say, look, this is part of being a human mother. Doesn't mean that it's okay. Doesn't mean that it doesn't create enormous damage to children. You know, that, that children who grow up with a deaf mother aren't, you know, end up with very hurt and very damaged and having to work with their own trauma. Uh, you know, they won't be traumatized and they won't carry trauma. They will. Um, but to know that it's part of human, you know, evolutionary history, part of, of, of our possibilities, part of our repertory of what's possible, that if this energy is coming through you, if you do, you know, are struggling, are a faltering mum, that this doesn't make you subhuman, this doesn't make you outside humanity, because, yes, we have this view that to be a natural, you know, in the 18th century, it was, you know, witches and handmaidens of Satan, Satan who committed infanticide. Jews carried it in the blood libel. That's all part, you know, othering the Jews who were, you know, supposedly killed Christian children. So it was always, it's put onto the other. And I think when we understand that it's part of the potential of all of us, then it becomes easier to face. It becomes un more understandable if we can understand the circumstances. And I think once we can understand something, we can bring some compassion and we can face it and we can work with it. And, you know, um, if we don't understand something and we think it makes us subhuman, you know, makes us inadequate at some fundamental level, um, and a bad person, then we're never, ever going to be able to face it. We're always going to want to try and hide it, to deny it, to get rid of whatever's caused. I mean, you get in a vicious cycle with it because if you think that to be a natural mother is to be all loving and all giving and you are having problems looking after your kid or bonding with your kid or loving your kid, um, you're then in our society going to feel tremendous shame about that which is this kind of visceral sense of being fundamentally inadequate. Because that's not what human mothers do, right? Human mothers are naturally and instinctively all loving to every child. So you're clearly not natural and not instinctual. And when we go into that kind of shame, we do, firstly, it's incredibly difficult to live with shame. So you look for ways to escape it. Addiction is one way we look out of shame in a moment of a kind of indictive high, or there is the shame is put aside for that moment. So in those moments, there's terrible shame afterwards when you come through it. But one thing that that people turn to, and one aspect of addiction, shame, and we also try to get rid of whatever is causing us to feel so shameful, inadequate. And there's a story by an American uh, psychoanalyst in a book she wrote called Mother Love, Mother Hate, where this mother is really struggling and not living up to the image of what 
she thinks she should be as a mother, you know, throws her baby down on the bed and says, you know, I wanted to kill it really because I was feeling, looking at it just made me feel so inadequate because I wasn't, you know, and so awful and so monstrous because I wasn't doing and feeling what society told me I should feel. And I didn't want to have to face that and getting rid of the baby I wouldn't have had to face that effectively so then you get in this vicious cycle where it gets worse and worse and worse whereas if you can say look this is really damaging and you know but I'm doing my best and this is part of being a mother and let's try to face that in myself let's try to understand what are the influences that are shaping that then you know there's ways to address it but if you can't face something and you're you know it's just something that's unnatural and bad you're never going to address it I mean you're at an absolute loss yeah so those pieces of naming it naming oh this is this is what's operating this is what's happening inside of me normalizing it being how this isn't just something that's wrong with me this is a pretty much universal aspect of motherhood of women of mother archetype and sharing it because shame can only exist in secrecy. So like, like we're doing now talking about it, having these conversations and starting to see, that's something that I love about women's circles is we, when we share our stories with each other or we listen to podcasts like this, we see, oh, I'm not the only, only one who's experiencing this. There's a lot of other women out there who are too. And then building that self-awareness of seeing, well, well given that this is true within me, what can I do with it now? Where where can I go from here? I completely agree with you. I completely. Um, I I mean, I just, I've been thinking recently about sharing and I think it's true what you're saying about women's circles, but I think it, I think these days I want to be very, make a distinction between how we share and talk about things because we, as, as, as Marion Woodman also says, you know, we can talk about things where we reinforce a victim story and we can talk all we like. And if all we're going to do is blame, um, blame our mothers for, you know, carrying death mother or blame whatever it is for why we're living death mother, talking doesn't help, Right. I mean, it's probably better than not talking, but it still doesn't, it, it, it leaves you stuck. So the talking that we have to do and the sharing that we have to do is, is to face it and to, yes, accept it without shame, but then to look at, and what next? Where is my responsibility in this? And how is my responsibility to, to now my responsibility, where's my responsibility to try to address this? Now that might be, who do I go to for help? I may, you know, it doesn't mean I have to address it. Taking responsibility for something doesn't mean I have to do it by myself. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's an important distinction. And it's kind of like, we're all in our lives. We're all dealt a hand of cards and we can't really, we don't really have a say and initially in what those cards are, but then it's up to us. Okay, now how are we going to play those cards? 
So just seeing that 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 self-responsibility there that ultimately you have to take ownership for for the content of our lives. And and there's there's a level of agency and empowerment in that, even if it's initially circumstances that you wouldn't choose for yourself. Yeah. So I think, yes. So I just just we've had a we've had quite a lot going in England about, oh yes, you know, just talk about your issues. And like I can know, you know, hearing people talk about their issues in public where it's been a story of blame, all that, what they've shared is, yes, this was awful, this happened, this was awful, this happened. And and you kind of think, yeah, but that's not going to help you come through it. It's like saying, you know, a driver hit me when I was on my cycle and broke my leg. Well, yes, but that's not going to mend your leg. Yes, I totally agree with you. But And I do think it's important, especially these darker aspects of our lives that that we that we do share them with each other because I found in my own experience in working with women that that in and of itself it's just it, it's liberating to know that that we're just we're not holding those secrets in and um, I, I do a lot of work around abortion I had an abortion four years ago that was not desired in some ways it was infanticide because I, I wanted to be a mother but the circumstances that this was happening in were not conducive for this raising a child who'd be well or for me to be well. Uh, and that experience just helped me to see how many women are just not talking about their our abortions because of shame, because of guilt, that we we didn't choose motherhood, um, that we um, that, that we chose that path and simply talking about it, with each other is is very healing because there just aren't spaces to do that in our culture. No, I agree. I just read an article today about saying uh, even harder to find spaces of people who who will admit the regret of having had children. Mm-hmm. But there yes. are people who've had children, and this this person was doing some research on it. Either regretted. The circumstances, they would have wanted children at a different time of their life with a different partner, with different circumstances. And some people who just regretted having children full stop, actually. And how incredibly difficult that, you know, how that's even harder for people to talk about, right? Um, And yes, absolutely. You know, when we can't voice stuff and we have so much shame about it, the toxicity that builds around that is, you know, unbelievably damaging, damaging for the person and actually damaging for the child because the children will pick that up. They may not pick it up explicitly, but they pick it up implicitly. And being a, you know, so it's, it's, you're not protecting a child from it by not admitting it to yourself or to anybody else. And yes, so profoundly important to be able to talk about, about it. So let's talk now a bit about the, those children that you just mentioned, or like you or me in our instances with the death mother, those of us who grow up in the shadow of the death mother and possibly hold different levels of PTSD or trauma as a result of that, what's what's the path to healing for for this population? And I have some things to add here, but I'm curious what, what you would say. Well, I mean, I think the path to healing is is incredibly complex and probably another 
an, another conversation. But I think um, one of the key aspects to healing is the shame that we carry from having felt not wanted, not good enough, not um, so not surplus to requirements isn't quite right because a lot of us were wanted, but the circumstances were such that we weren't made to feel valued either because, you know, our parents had, if they had addiction issues, they couldn't value us. They were too caught up in their own, the drives and their addictions and their issues. Um, or because our parents wanted us to be somehow different to who we are, that there was either some need you know, they wanted us to be different because they thought we'd have a better chance of surviving if we were different to how we were. Um, that was certainly part of it with my mother as a Holocaust victim. You know, she had a very clear sense of what I needed to be if I was going to have a chance of surviving come another hot Hitler. And so, she, you know, and that wasn't who I was. But partly also because they have trauma and that they're looking to us to heal their trauma. You know, there was another layer of my mother that had nothing to do with the Holocaust that I, I has something to do with her childhood, I don't know. But at some level, she was looking to me to fix her. And I was never going to be able to do that. And therefore, I was inadequate in many ways in her eyes, because I couldn't give her that kind of emotional. She loved me dearly. So I think part of it is to come to that place of I didn't deserve that. I wasn't inadequate, because you know, I wasn't quiet enough when my parents were in a drinking bitch or because I wasn't this enough or I wasn't that enough. I didn't deserve that. I'm not in, you know, to face and to understand that. I think there's a stage where you have to be very angry with your parents. Yeah, I mean, you may not, I don't necessarily think there's any, there's often a lot of, to be gained by confronting them because I don't often, you know, our parents all did their best. Um, I really believe that, you know, most parents are doing their best. Their best may be deeply compromised by what they carry and the circumstances of their lives. And their best may be the best of a very bad job, but that bad job has come from their history and their circumstances and their challenges. But I think there then comes a point of understanding of going, okay, well, it wasn't about me. I can see how those circumstances shaped the way that they looked after me. And I think that helps to heal some of the shame. When you sit there and you can kind of go, okay, right. Well, I can see that this was really difficult and that was really difficult and that will have had a knock-on effect in how, of course, that shaped and distorted how they parented me. And I didn't deserve to be parented like that. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't mean that it's okay and that I shouldn't have been wounded by it. I was wounded by it. Um, I am damaged by it. But it wasn't personal to me. It was about their struggles in their life. And I now have to do my best to work with the damage that I carry so that hopefully I don't pass that on to the next generation so that I can hold the damage. You know, we're very lucky. We understand an awful lot more about trauma than our parents' generation did, many of us, certainly people of my age. Um, you know, I, 
I can work with it and hold it in a way that hopefully means that I pass less of it on. I think we'll, you know, do I think I wouldn't, I, I don't have children, but do I think I wouldn't pass any of it on? Absolutely not. Of course I would. But hopefully I would work with it enough to be passing less of it on. Um, what, what you mentioned about the anger, I think is also important because like you said, we don't want to stay in the anger, but I think that that the initial, when we start to feel the anger towards our caregivers for this embodying this death mother archetype, that anger, the root of that anger is, is activation. And that, that is that activation that can give us the energy that we need to come out of victim mode and just, just to really own our agency, to, to do something with our circumstances. And one of the things, I think the main thing that has been really helpful for me, which is an ongoing process, um, but I've made significant significant strides in it is just the process of reparenting myself or remothering myself and going back to my younger selves internally in kind of a meditative or um, state and just kind of redoing things and seeing even seeing a different a different mother or my mother acting in a different way or or my highest self, my present self, just going back in time and and re reparenting and um, just laying down a new imprint that can seep into my cells. That's that's different than the death mother imprint. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you know a lot of the challenge of, of healing trauma of any kind is is being able to hold what appear to be very contradictory. Um, emotions so there's a kind of anger i didn't you know i didn't deserve that why didn't you get your shit together held alongside with i understand that yeah and and it takes you know we don't come to being able to hold both at the same time early in the process it takes time and we'll go through a phase where we you're absolutely right we do have to go to the anger because the anger is about saying, I, I am worth more than that, what happened. I deserve better than that. You know, and it's a, it's a standing for and with oneself at certain point, which is a way of actually reparenting as well. It's, you know, what you wish your parents would have done would have stood with you and for you. So at some point, the anger is that, you know, don't, that wasn't, you know, we couldn't do it as children. But, you know... And so there's periods where, you know, that, that may be months, that might be years where we, where we stand in that anger. And at the same time, we come through that to a place where we hold the anger and it, it is, you know, alive and stands with us and for us and protects us because we need healthy protection. And anger is a route to healthy protection. You know, yes, it's about, about boundaries. Don't do that to me. Don't treat me that way. I deserve more. Um, and at the same time, hold and I feel compassion, you know, for you because I can understand how difficult it was for you and how it wasn't personal. And 
the trauma and the pain that you were carrying to push you into looking after me. But that's a later stage. But in a funny sort of way, we, you know, the compassion for our parents in that way also opens the door for the compassion to ourselves. Because if we've been grown up with death mother and we carry trauma, the chances are that that has been expressed at some points we have behaved pretty shoddily to other people. In some of our relationships, somewhere along the line, if we've grown up with that, we've had very little trauma. We've behaved shoddily to ourselves, whether that's through eating disorders or addiction, we've hurt ourselves. But somewhere along the line, if we've grown up with a deaf mother, we're going to have behaved pretty shoddily to others and to yeah. ourselves that's that's our core relationship that we've we've um embodied and so then yeah then it just gets reflected out in a lot of other relationships so that kind of compassion that you know that we when we can start seeing that our parents perhaps the the circumstances and the context which which shaped and influenced their behavior it then also opens the door for us to do that for ourselves too. Right? You know, I can see there's, the, you know, there's genuine compassion for, for ourselves and how we've behaved in ways that have, have been far from the ideal when at certain times. So I think those two things go hand in hand. I think... Um, I mean, because uh, otherwise we're split. Otherwise, if we sit there and go, you know, I have a lot of, okay, I can understand why I behaved like this, given my childhood and given the death mother energy I faced in childhood and how that was, uh, came through to me, I can understand how I behaved. But if we're still not extending that understanding to why our caregivers behaved in that way, there's then a split in terms of, so... But it's a journey and, we, and we'll also move back and forth. There'll be, you know, it's relatively easy to have compassion when once your parents have passed on. It's kind of difficult if they're still there and they're still behaving in the way that was damaging and they're still, you know, actively drinking or they're still in a way that behaving in that way and you're having to engage with them. It's much, much harder at that point. Yes. So that's just highlighting, you know, for those who are really feeling under the grip of the death mother in various ways, that healing is gradual. It's, I mean, even lifelong, it's nonlinear, complex. So it, it requires that we, we hold a lot of opposing feelings and perspectives, and there's a lot of gray zones and that that to get to that place of holding that that kind of complexity just takes takes time and takes support. Like we can't do it by ourselves. It absolutely. I mean, that's so true. And it is lifelong. I think if we carry some of this, I think there are bits of it that we can heal. I mean, you know that that will not disappear. But there's bits of it that will have very much reduced impact in our lives and there's other bits of it that will be powerful throughout our entire lives and healing then becomes how we relate to those bits and how we hold them yeah um not that they're gone and that they're fixed 
And yes, there is no quick. And yes, we absolutely need support. Partly we need support because, you know, we don't, half the time we're not conscious of, you know, what, as Marion Woodman used to say, what is unconscious is unconscious. It's not accessible to our consciousness. We need somebody else often you know, whether it's a book or a conversation like this, but there needs to be something we hear that opens a door to what we're carrying inside. And sometimes that needs to be a direct challenge. Sometimes that needs to be, you know, a direct challenge from, in a loving way, absolutely, from somebody who wants the best for you, but somebody who, who you know, then says, hold on, you know, why is this in you? Um, so in the interview with Marion, you know, we differentiated between she, the death mother, which for her is the energy which kills life, which says no to growth. I don't want you to be here. And then what I ended up calling the apocalyptic mother, which is the energy which which does bring a death, but it brings a death of an old way of being so that new life can come through. Mm. And, you know, the apocalypse is the day of judgment where we're called up and what we're faced with what, you know, a day of revelation and day of judgment. And sometimes we need that to kind of someone say, look, you know, you keep living this, even if it's the result of the trauma that you carry, you are, you know, you are going to stay in a place of death for your entire life. So, so sometimes that challenge needs to, you know, for Marion, that challenge came through cancer, right? That was what made her turn around and face what she, you know, it was no longer about, as she says, no longer about what happened to me or didn't happen to me. I had to turn around and face what I carried inside of myself. Mm-hmm. And to choose to transform that. And to transform that. That's um, something that's life-giving. Yeah. And then for other people, it comes through, you know, people who really love us challenging us. You know, hopefully, I mean, it, it, if we can get to that place from somebody who, who really loves us, you know, it's preferable to having to go there with, with cancer. So what do you think it would look like if we really, in this in these times, if we really remembered and integrated and took out took the death mother archetype out of the shadow how how would that benefit us as individuals as women as a culture I think it would um well I think we'd be able to face it and I think there would probably be there would this is very, I don't know is the answer. I don't know. But I think that in individual cases, certainly, if, individ, if I see a number of, you know, a large number of, of women doing it, I think there'd be less childhood trauma because I think they'd be able to mother with less shame and there would be more support. I think there would be some of the public policies might be um, really understand the importance of support for women. But I think, you know, part of, if you go back to the evolution and the anthropology, resources make a huge difference. So long as there's kind of the kind of levels of poverty there are in some areas. It's not that everybody who's poor is going to carry death mother, but 
it's going to be very hard to shift deaf mother with the levels of poverty we have in, in certain areas and the levels of racism and the levels of hostility against certain groups. Because, you know, you also get deaf mother coming through society in kind of group levels of, I don't want this group here. I know. Yeah, or this, gen- like you were saying initially, like this gender, certain areas of the world want certain genders and not the other. So um, I think you yeah, I think it's a big part of it with the evolution is that we do learn, you know, we're very, we're fantastically good at social learning humans. We learn from other, and we have to because we live in such an incredibly diverse range of environments, you know, how you, well, even how you make stone tools varies depending on where you are in the world because the stones are different, how you make a fire varies, you know. So none of these things that were fundamental to human existence for tens of thousands of years are innate in terms of they don't require learning. They've all required learning because it's been so different in different parts of the environment. And actually so is mothering. You know, if you're in the Arctic and it's minus 20, what you do as a mother is very different to if you're in a tropical rainforest, right? So there's been a huge, you, we're very dependent on social learning. And I think part of the issue is that a lot of, you know, if we understood some of the evolutionary stuff, the biggest, I think, risk of a mum maltreating her child is if she was seriously maltreated as a child herself. Yeah. Now, there's many factors that go into that. You know, part of them will be about her development and the trauma that she carries and and how that affects her fear system and how that affects her hormonal system. So part of that will be about how her her biology has been changed by her trauma. But part of that will be about what she's learned. And I think there is um, studies that try to stop, uh, studies of, of programs that are aimed at trying to prevent child maltreatment has recently found that the ones that work are the ones that provide support, but also provide some degree of, of training, of education. And that makes sense because, you know, women don't, we again have this myth that you instinctively and naturally know how to look after, you know, you should know how to look after. No, you learn it. And in most societies, kids start learning it when they're about four or five years old, when they, you know, are handed the newborn baby half the time to carry around for most of the day, let alone are with their mothers all the time, or, you know, with women who they see mothering all the time. So, you know, in our society, it's all done behind closed doors. Kids don't see anything apart from their own experience. And by the time mum has the next one, they're usually at school, right? So, so I think, you know, there would be an understanding that some of this is uh, that we need support, we need uh, resources. Sometimes there needs to be education and training and help supporting women. Um, but I think, yes, if we could turn around and face it and face it as something that is part of the human repertoire than, rather than something that's gone that's makes that's pathology in some way uh you know we could address it but i don't know how that would look in terms of society you know intersects with so many other issues it does it does 
And what is your current growing edge? My current growing edge is so, well, part of it we've sort of touched on a little, but I part, um, I'm trying currently bring together some of the archetypal and the evolutionary. And one of the way I'm doing that is to look at if we do have trauma, what are the parts of ourselves that we've killed or tried to kill because they were too dangerous to be lived? Because it's, you know, very easy to say, what did we have to put aside because of, of our homes? But what parts of us, you know, what about that early pain and that early fear that we've not allowed through? And the part of us that carries that. So I'm, I'm working with that. I'm also, um, so I'm writing about that. And I'm possibly going to put a book together on Death Mother, bringing the different perspectives, bringing the kind of evolution in the anthropology, and then some of this psychodynamic and trying to juxtapose them. And then my other, the bigger project is, is a project about child trauma and looking at the system and that gets put in place, the system um, that I call a trauma world that gets this kind of altered reality that there's a kind of psychological equivalent of what happened with COVID, you know, this kind of internal normality where we go into this other uh, our reality changes in a way based around mm-hmm. fear and shame and disconnection um and I'm writing about that and what it means to heal that and how we how we of course the death mother stuff feeds in because the death mother stuff is part of what puts us into trauma but there's other things that can put us into trauma but it's one of the one of the um impetuses that can can create trauma not the only one by any stretch of the imagination but um, so it feeds into the creation of trauma worlds, but my real focus these days is on what I call trauma worlds and on healing them, and what it and what it means to be healed if you do carry trauma, because as, as you've said, it doesn't mean that it all goes away, and it's you know, mm-hmm. yeah, such important work you're doing. I I know that I'm curious to read everything that you just <laughs> you just mentioned. And for others who are as well, how can people find you and learn more about you and what you do? So they can find me. I've got a website, which is um, www.daniellaseif.com, which is um, Daniela with one L. And you can also sign up to my newsletter. I really don't send out very many. I send out like three or four a year. And I'm really only using it to let people know of new work or, you know, I'll let Obviously, your listeners won't need to know, but I will let people know of this podcast once it's been out. So I'm using it sort of two or three times a year. I gather together what I've done that's now in the public domain and um, through the newsletter, tell people about that. And obviously, when the new books are finished, I'm a slow writer. But um, when the new books are finished and published, then that will also be a way to to find out about that so that's really what I use there I'm on social media too and I kind of use it a bit but so you can find me on social media if that is your preference fantastic and I'll share those links in the show notes as well Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about this today Daniela and for devoting so much of your life and career to these really important and under underexplored topics. I know it's, I've learned so much 
um, through you and your work. And I know the same will be true for, for all of our listeners. So thank you for your tremendous contribution. Thank you very much. It was as ever, you know, great. It was great to have a conversation with someone who was so involved and could give so much back. And um, I really, I, it's difficult to say I enjoyed it because it's such a difficult topic to talk about. But I appreciated it and nourished it and appreciated the opportunity to to talk to you about it. Likewise. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking this time out for yourself. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way other women who might enjoy it can better find it. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.